traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, has the pandemic changed work forever? Businesses do sort of realise that they need to do more, give more of a voice to frontline workers. A Pandora's box has been opened. It's very, very difficult now to imagine that we will go back. And who are the winners and losers in this new world? The the impact of the pandemic has been very unequally distributed. These things are beneficial in the long run, but the cost for the people who provide those services will be substantial. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken a terrible toll on the world's workers. It's destroyed millions of jobs, causing a drop in employment 14 times bigger than the one after the financial crisis of a decade ago. In some countries, unemployment has risen to levels last seen in the 1930s, with the pain concentrated among the low-skilled. The pandemic has also worsened inequalities that have previously often only bubbled under the surface. Our new special report, just released on Economist.com, reflects on a horrific year for workers in 2020, but also argues that there are many reasons for optimism about labour markets. The immediate legacy of the pandemic makes for grim reading. But the long-term picture is a different story. The disruption we've all felt is profound, but in the world of work it's accelerated a change that may well have been necessary. I think for a lot of people, it's the, it's the biggest part of their identity. When you ask someone, who are you, they'll often tell you their, their job. Callum Williams is The Economist's senior economics writer and author of the special report. At a sort of societal level, it has, a, has an impact on things like crime and, and life satisfaction. Crime tends to go up when unemployment goes up too. And then as we're going to see, I think, over the next few years, there's a very close relationship really between labour markets and public health outcomes. So they're far beyond the sort of simple act of earning money. You alluded to it there, but can we, given that context, talk about the scale of what has happened under the pandemic? The word unprecedented is bandied about a lot, but is this a unique disaster for the labour market? I mean, if you look, for instance, at America, unemployment didn't go as high as it went during the Great Depression. So in in that sense, it wasn't unprecedented. I think it was the scale and the speed of the shock that was unprecedented. You know, America went from very low unemployment, three and a half to four percent in February and March to 15 percent in April. And that happened in a single month. And if you look at what happened uh, in other countries, the stats are a little bit more complicated because of things like furlough schemes and all that sort of stuff. But the scale of job loss, the scale of people who were no longer required at work was just as large and perhaps even larger. I think the other thing, of course, about the coronavirus pandemic is that it's not just to, to do with people losing their jobs. It's also to do with how people work. You know, whether that be working from home or whether or not robots are going to become more important now. And also, kind of crucially, the sort of third 
as it were, unprecedented thing about the pandemic is it's opened up new doors for what governments are supposed to do and what governments think they can do to help people. The sort of scale of interventions was genuinely unprecedented. And you can see now that the governments are thinking differently about kind of how they need to approach labour markets and what they need to do to, to help people get into work. Indeed. I mean, how have labour markets coped with all this? I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, I suppose there were forecasts that we were going to see completely unheard of levels of unemployment. How much real unemployment is there? I think the way to think about this is both that the scale of the job loss has been less than some people had feared and the sort of bounce back from the catastrophe of a year ago has been faster than people had expected. So take the first one first. In February and March, people were talking about American unemployment potentially rising as high as 30%. That was proven not to be true. In America, unemployment went up to 15% rather than 30 Still incredibly high, but, but really not as high as some people have feared. And of course, the OECD, OECD as a whole, unemployment rose to about 10%, but didn't carry on rising in the second half of 2020. It started to fall. Across the rich world as a whole, now, unemployment is around 7%. That's high, much higher than it was, but it's way, way, way lower than was expected. And, and that decline has happened much more sharply than people expected too. One of the biggest ruptures with the old way of doing things has been the abrupt shift to working from home for those who can. Before the pandemic, Americans spent 5% of their working time at home. By spring 2020, that percentage was 60. The shift has gone better than expected. People are working longer hours, but they report higher levels of happiness and productivity. As lockdowns lift, is working from home likely to stay? Something very particular has happened, which is an experiment that various organisations have been doing with flexibility and found that it worked. Julia Hobsbawm is the chair of the Work Shift Commission, set up by the think tank Demos, and author of its new report on the future of work called The Nowhere Office. A Pandora's box has been opened. It's very, very difficult now to imagine that we will go back to anything other than hybrid. Companies are jumping in and giving their workers free reign. Spotify have told their workers they can work from anywhere. PwC have told 22,500 workers that they can choose where they work and so on. The economists too, I should add. But some countries are, of course, way ahead of us in this process. Places like Australia and New Zealand, where the pandemic's more or less under control. What does their experiences tell us about the way it's going to go? It's not swathes of companies ditching their offices, is it? No, it's not. And to some degree, the countries that are ahead in terms of having either averted the worst of the pandemic or gone beyond it and gone through it are finding out that, guess what? People want other people. They want proximity to other people. There's some very interesting research done by Microsoft that's shown that whilst well over 70% of employees do want the right to work remotely and flexibly, 67% do want to work at some point in person with people. So what countries are experiencing is that finding that balance between in-person and remote is going to be crucial. And what about how you measure work in in the new environment? Uh, I mean, it used to be that if you were in the office, it was fairly obvious you were there. And if you're working from home, I suppose that there are two ways it could go. Either, as we hear some call centres are doing, you could step up remote monitoring of how much work people are actually doing, or you could go to a more sophisticated judgment entirely on output, on results. 
Well, of course, the link between presenteeism and productivity has never really been proven outside of a sort of factory. You know, the big challenge is going to be how trusting managers can become of their workforce, because actually all the evidence shows that being spied on by technology to uh, produce digital presenteeism is very unpopular, as you can imagine. But equally, productivity becomes much more in the spotlight if you haven't got the chimera of it by having everybody in the same place present nine to five. I actually welcome these changes. I think that the workplace has been rather unhappy for a long time. It's demonstrably been unproductive. It's demonstrably had epic levels of rising stress, so much so that the World Health Organization declared stress as the biggest health epidemic before the pandemic. This is a fantastic opportunity for reset to get right some of the things that have historically been not addressed and to create new models of working. Your take is is very upbeat, Julia, but from my personal experience of meeting a lot of people who have found working from home leads to well, a lot more work to start with, a, a lack of dividing lines between work and home life, burnout, and far from a magical return to a work-life balance. Uh, is this just a, a, a period of transition? Are, are we going to go through this or, or will it always be that some people can adapt and others can't? I'm not an evangelist for work from home versus return to the office. For a start, people's homes are very different. What I think is shifting is a value set, which is that all workers in office white collar work are recognising that who they are as individuals in their lives matters, that it doesn't play second fiddle to the office, and that in fact, managers are beginning to realise that their workforce, if their well-being is seriously attended to, do better. So the challenge is, I think, to bring purpose, the big corporate word of the moment, and meaning and values into what work is, and almost to say where and when and how you work can be designed around it. And from that point of view, I would describe myself as a pragmatic, optimistic pessimist. Of course, I recognise there is no one size fits all. Of course, I recognise that inequality has always been in the workplace and is almost certainly going to continue. But, and it's a big but, the pandemic has opened a door that has been squeaking and mostly shut for a long time. Julia Hobsbawm, thank you. But of course, Callum, not everybody can work from home. And, and that's been one of the stories of the pandemic, hasn't it? The uh, unfairnesses, inequalities between different types of jobs. How, how do you see that in balance? Yes, I entirely agree. The pandemic has exposed and um, accentuated a lot of these, these inequalities. We rely on people, essential workers, to kind of keep us fed, watered, heated, supplied with utilities, all that sort of stuff. And there... Some of the figures that have emerged from the research over the past few months are really shocking. There was a very good study that was done a couple of months ago in California, which looked at people of working age. So in uh, California as a whole, people of working age saw a rise in mortality of about sort of 20% uh, during the pandemic. But that figure rose to uh, as high as 60% for line cooks, people that are kind of on the front lines of 
feeding people. So the impact of the pandemic has been very unequally distributed. Another massive inequality of the pandemic recession, of course, is how it's affected men and women very differently. I mean, in particular, the fact that a lot of women have dropped out of the labour force in order to take care of children over the past year and female unemployment has, has risen much more. So that's another way in which this pandemic has been unequal. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. One of the transformations that was already underway was the drive to automation. And it's a familiar story, one that sees progress in general set against sharp costs for the people who lose their jobs to new technology. I'm a Ford Professor of Economics and Associate Head of the MIT Department of Economics and also the uh, co-chair of the MIT Task Force on the Work of the Future. I think that the biggest change of automation is the one that's most obvious, if you think about it for a moment, which is the rise of telepresence and uh, the fact that we are going to be doing things remotely as we are during this conversation. That is not so much a technological breakthrough because in fact, all the tools we're using existed several years ago. It's a coordination breakthrough. The, the big innovation with you know Zoom, for example, is not that I'm using it, it's that you're using it and that everybody else I know is using it. And so now it changes the norm around all kinds of things that we're gonna be doing going forward. One is, of course, how much we will be physically in our offices. Another, and I think you know, quite profound, is how much business travel we will not do. So when we talk about reduced commuting to the office, right, that means less demand for our urban offices. It means fewer security workers and cleaners. It means fewer people at coffee shops and at lunch spots. Uh, it means less uh, demand at gas stations, at toll booths. That's one thing. The second thing is for business travel, a lot of business travel is to kind of marquee cities. And uh, the business consumer, the business traveler, you know, drives a big chunk of activity, not simply the airplane that they take, but the Uber, the taxi, or the limo, and the expensive hotel they stay at on a weeknight, and the fancy restaurant they go out to on the expense account, and getting their shoes shined, and the dry cleaning, and so on. The pandemic is going to have a lasting effect on demand for many of these in-person services, but particularly in urban areas. In some ways, there may be some benefits. Most of these things are beneficial in the long run, but the cost for the people who provide those services will be substantial. Companies could find that once they've invested in automation, they, they don't want to reverse that. To what extent do you see that happening? So part of the cost of automating anything is, is sort of a big fixed cost. One is kind of improving the technology and the other is adapting the technology to what you do. Once you've paid those fixed costs, there are many benefits that follow. And so you could say many things that would have been automated, we kind of pulled that process into the present from five years in the future or 10 years in the future. And once that's done, I don't think we'll go back. I doubt uh, firms, once they've made this investment, will want to reverse it unless it doesn't work well. My concern at present is that there's more things are going to be automated that affect less educated labor. One thing that we thought I felt confident of prior to the pandemic is that we would have lots of low-wage jobs. Now, 
low wage jobs, not a plus, but having more of them is better than having less of them. <laughs> and the reason is because when there's more of them, they're competing more aggressively for workers. And that tends to increase uh, wages, improve working conditions, allow employees to bargain for more flexibility. When we have too few of those jobs and people chasing them, that puts downward pressure on uh, on wages, on working conditions, and everything else like it. What well, do you think the priority should be for governments who are trying to reduce inequality in the labour market? It's going to take you know interventions or, or you know policies uh, on many levels. So one, of course, is economic growth itself. Anything that accelerates economic growth and gets us quickly back on a trajectory of consumption and investment helps enormously. The best labor market policy, you know, in the short and medium run is a tight labor market. <laughs> that just, you know, tends to float all boats. The next set of things having has to do ultimately with targeting skills towards where there is opportunity, right? So there's enormous demand in uh, medical and healthcare work, for example, not all for MDs, right? For people at all levels of credentials and expertise. And so getting people onto a pathway where they can qualify for those jobs is very important. This also means working on the labor, the employment side, working very hard to basically get employers to consider skills rather than credentials. And then there's a lot of policy that affects this. One, of course, is policy directly targeting the quality of jobs, minimum wages, paid medical leave, access to health care, and so on. Another is policies that affect investment. Right, so the tax code in many countries, in the U.S. in particular, very much subsidizes capital investment relative to labor investment. So if you buy a, a robot, uh, you get a tax break. The government goes in with you on that. If you hire extra workers, the government does not go in with you on that. So at the margin, the playing field is actually kind of tilted against labor and towards capital, and I would say inefficiently so. The fact that I'm concerned about some of the impacts of automation on jobs does not make me think we should slow down on investment in technology, but we should steer it correctly. We should focus on important problems. I'd rather to see more AI used in healthcare and less AI used in you know, social media, for example, uh, which is less of a, a high social priority. Thanks to David Orta. Callum, I think it's probably fair to say that the pandemic has exacerbated a, a quite widespread general sense of pessimism about the future of work, the sense that there are going to be fewer and fewer jobs as, as they go online or are taken over by artificial intelligence bots and so on, and that, that what jobs are left are not going to be very interesting. Do you share that, that, that gloomy sense? On the whole, I don't share it. That pessimism about the world of work is, has, is something that has a very long history. Even in the 1950s and 60s, which people now from a 21st century perspective, see as a golden age of work. If you actually read the sort of articles, often sort of learned journal articles that were being published at the time, people are really worried about the world of work and they think that work was a lot better in the past and they're worried about, in particular, there's a lot of concern about unionised car workers in places like Michigan, which now are seen as like the best job ever. But actually back then they were seen as people who were working in dangerous jobs. They had no autonomy. They couldn't decide what they wanted to do. They were bored. And so people desperately wanted to leave these jobs. On the whole, I think the pandemic, despite these absolutely massive short-term bumps, will actually lead to a better world of work. It's made governments realise just how important it is to have a, a world in which unemployment is low, People can find jobs if they want it and people are kind of paid fairly if they get if they get a job. And, and, and I think there's a lot of movement now, both in central banks and in governments, to kind of getting us back to where we were in 2019. And I think that is definitely a good thing. And, uh, and how about the way businesses are behaving? Are they changing how they hire and train and, and manage their staff? 
businesses do sort of realize that they need to do more, give more of a voice to frontline workers. And, you know, this can be as easy as giving them access to like a corporate email account where they can get in contact with with the HQ. You know, these changes don't necessarily have to be super radical. And I think you are also seeing, not from all companies by any means, but from some, an emphasis on, you know, helping people move from sectors which are less popular today than they were before the pandemic into new roles by, you know, training and reskinning and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I don't want to, I really don't want to shower businesses with too much praise because a lot of them haven't done that well during the pandemic. But certainly you can see a bit of an upsurge in in that sort of behaviour. And how about policymakers? What what advice would you give them about what their priorities should be in the post-pandemic world as as regards employment? I mean, I think there's a, there's quite a few. Um, some of them are pretty kind of familiar to people who follow labour markets, particularly in America, but also in the UK. There are barriers to entry into certain professions that are too high. And this allows people in those who are lucky enough to be in those industries to charge higher prices and exclude good competition, that sort of thing. So I think that's something that this should be looked at. Immigration has a huge positive impact on entrepreneurship and productivity and innovation. So that's obviously something that they should focus on. I think probably the pandemic has has brought two particular other things to light. One is getting welfare right, not just making it more generous in some instances, but improving the quality of the training that's on offer for people that need to find new jobs. And I think employment law, making sure that it is properly enforced and that all companies play by the rules. And that may sound like a modest objective, but we're actually quite a long way from that situation. So those would be the two big things I would single out. It sounds as if your conclusion is that there is a silver lining to the pandemic, that in terms of the world of work, it will mean improvements. There is a silver lining, if only in that it brought to the fore some of the problems with the pre-pandemic labour market. But it's also made people look back on the world in 2018 and 2019, when things really, really, by sort of any measure, were genuinely going quite well and think, how can we get back to that quickly? And I think that that is a good thing. All these reforms that we're, we're talking about, you know, they, they will take time and, and, and they will come with their own trade-offs and their own downsides. But I hope and I expect that they would push us just a little bit closer to a better world of work. Callum, thank you. Thank you. To read Callum's special report on the future of work, subscribe to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And please don't forget to give Money Talks a review on your podcast app. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.